The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I wanted to continue the conversation about getting familiar with delusion, recognizing it, understanding it, seeing how it works. I've been talking about this for a number of weeks. There's so much to say about it. (laughs) Um, And I've talked about, you know, I, I have this kind of sense of different levels or layers of delusion and Um, Just give a little overview here before I kind of dive into this week's aspect to explore. Um, You know, the the different levels of delusion, the most obvious level, the one that we're probably most familiar with, and maybe a little lower on the volume, Richard, yeah. Um, The one we're most, uh, uh, most familiar with perhaps is, that's good, thanks, is the, the disconnection from experience when we're spaced out, when we're basically not aware. That's, that's a kind of um, uh, a, a form of delusion when we are not aware of what's happening in the present moment, but it, instead are caught by our, our thoughts, our views, our beliefs. And so we're kind of in a story or in a dream, um, unaware of what's happening around us. And something I want to say too, I just actually decided this morning to look up in the dictionary the definition of delusion and to look up in Wikipedia what they say, have to say about delusion. And largely in our language, delusion is used to refer to a mental illness. And so I want to um, say that, well, to some extent, the Buddha is talking about, uh, in this aspect of delusion, is talking about ways in which we're all not right in our minds. Um, yet, uh, the kind of delusion I'm also talking about here isn't what we would typically call mental illness. Um, you know, if we think about, if we do think about mental illness as being not having an accurate perception of reality, then indeed this is what the Buddha is talking about. And yet, um, I think in the psychological sense, it's uh, the 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 frame of delusion is not. Uh, is having a different uh, representation of reality than most people around us. Um, and, and so a kind of a, um, a, a representation of reality that's based on um, um, confused, confused, uh, confused perception of the world. And in fact, that is what the Buddha points to around delusion. And yet... Uh, it's not about it's not about what we typically think of as mental illness. So I just want to kind of reframe the word a little bit, um, because sometimes when people maybe you know since since I realize that that word is typically used to refer to um, mental illness in in English, then it may be there may be a little bit of a separation. Well, I'm not delu- I'm not deluded, and uh, we are all. We all have delusion in the way the Buddha speaks about it. And so this is one aspect, the aspect of basically not knowing what's happening in the present moment and being caught in our thoughts, lost in a world of thought. And this happens all the time to us. So that's kind of the most basic form of delusion. A second form of delusion is um, a kind of delusion that's based on um, conditioning from our families, from our cultures, 
from how we were raised, uh, from our um, our social groups, um, ideas, views, opinions that we don't see as ideas, views, opinions. So, um, and, and sometimes we we don't like if we're raised with a certain perspective. Um, now, for instance, some some families might be raised with the with the perspective. Just a simple example that um, everybody stays at the table until you're done eating, until everybody is done eating. You know that may be the culture of of a family. And then if you if you and so you just assume that's the way it is. And then if you go to somebody else's house for dinner and you see people kind of leaving at various times, it might feel really odd to you. And it begins to point out, oh, that isn't the way it is. It's a perspective. And so, you know, as a simple example, that's, that's a kind, the kind of thing, a view, a, a perspective based on um, our upbringing, our conditioning in, in the world. Um, and the the biggest aspect of it is, as delusion, isn't so much that we're um, that it's a problem that we have this perspective that families stay together while they're having a meal. That's it's not particularly a problem. Where the where the delusion comes in, and what happens more often than you would think is is when those views become entrenched to. Um, a sense of rightness, you know, it's like this is, this is the right way to live and that's the wrong way to live. Or my way of doing this is, is the right way. So that, that's where the delusion begins to creep in to, to, um, to views, is that we don't see it as a perspective, we see it as a truth. And so that's the kind of second level of delusion, a, a level of delusion that's kind of, we all get shaped with various perspectives in our lives. And when we don't see them as perspectives, that's the form of, del- that's the second form of delusion. And we all have, you know, cultures have their perspectives and families have their perspectives. And we grow up with perspectives based on, individual perspectives based on, all kinds of things, like how, how we were treated as a child or, uh, you know, how kids related to us on the playground or how things happened to us in college. I mean, all kinds of ways that we're shaped personally, individually, um, and views form around that. In, this, in that form of delusion and in the next form, the one that I, uh, a piece of which I'd like to focus on today, in that form of delusion, it's not so much about that we're not knowing what's happening in the present moment. So it's not like that disconnection from experience. We're aware in the present moment, but we are, it's like we've got a filter on of what's right and what's true and anything that doesn't correspond to that becomes uncomfortable or confusing or wrong. And, and so that, uh, it's, not, it's not that we're not seeing what's happening in the world, but we're not seeing it, um, let's say we're, we're seeing it through a filter. And so we're not necessarily seeing it accurately. So that's the, this is the second form of delusion. The third form of delusion I would call more human delusion. Um, 
delusions that we all share as human beings, regardless of how we're shaped by our cultures. Um, in some ways, I think it's, so these three, there's three forms of this, or, or three major forms of this the Buddha points to, that we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable to be a reliable source of happiness. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. And in some ways I see this, these human delusions as be, they are also conditioned, by the way. They are also conditioned by our interaction with the world. But I see them as being more conditioned by our human uh, apparatus, our organism, by the way our human organism functions in relationship to the world. So for instance, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, there's a lot about our human apparatus that uh, tries to stabilize the world so that we can navigate it. And so that, that functioning of our sight and sound and smell and taste and touch, I mean, just the way our senses work together. Like for instance, um, you know, I look at that wall over there and I see it, I see it's a wall, and you know, if I were to um, be told to run headlong that way, my body would come up short before it hit the wall because I also know about the hardness of that wall. I've touched against walls a lot in my life, and so there's something in my mind that understands hardness of the wall as a physical experience, but the, the sight experience and the physical experience are different sense, sense impressions, And yet the mind weaves them together to create a a sense of stability. It's like my, it's very hard for my mind to separate the sight from the, uh, the, the understanding that it's hard. And so that's why if I were to run headlong towards it, my mind would, my, 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 my system would pull me up short so that I wouldn't damage the body when I hit, if I hit the wall quickly. And so our, our system is designed to stabilize and to integrate experience. And that's one of the reasons why we tend to take what's impermanent to be permanent. Um, because our mind tends to stabilize experience. And I talked about this piece of it last week. And so I don't want to go into that Um, too much more. If you're interested in hearing more about that, you could listen to the Audio Dharma podcast on that piece of it. Um, Today, I'd like to focus a little bit more on the aspect of taking what is unreliable to be reliable. Taking what's unreliable as a lasting source of happiness to be a reliable lasting source of happiness. This, uh, this characteristic, we could call it a characteristic of unreliability. Actually, the, the, um, the Buddhist teachings speak about um, these, uh, these three areas, impermanent, unreliable, not self, as being kind of foundational um, characteristics of all experience. And uh, so when we, are, when, when we are not understanding experience to be impermanent, unreliable, not self, we're essentially 
uh, not aligning ourselves with kind of how experience actually works or the truth of how experience actually functions. And so that's where some of the rub, some of the suffering starts to happen. And so the truth of unreliability or the, the uh, characteristic, let's call it characteristic, that's the language that the commentaries use, a characteristic of unreliability is... Um, is understood to be uh, kind of a foundational experiential reality for human beings. That there is nothing that we can experience, nothing that in our experience is a place or a reliable enough experience that we can find it, land on it, and find a lasting happiness with it. The, uh, the kind of the, uh, the underlying reason for that unreliability is related to the characteristic of impermanence. Every, everything that we experience at, at large levels, at small levels, uh, has this characteristic of, of impermanence, this characteristic that it changes. And, you know, again, um, our system, our human system is designed to kind of stabilize and also the scale, there's different l- scales of change. So, you know, the scale of the change of the planet Earth, for instance, um, you know, it's been created over billions of years but human beings were not always on the planet and human beings won't always be on the planet. At some point, the planet will be burned up with the sun as it implodes and expands and becomes a, a red giant. And so at some point, even the earth will disappear. And yet the scale of that change is so vast that we can't perceive it so much. Um, and then there's change on the very... Um, microscopic level. I mean, particle physics tells us that this table is mostly space. And yet, the particles are moving so rapidly that it creates this experience of solidity as it, as, as it hits our, uh, our system. And yet, my, my understanding also is that in terms of the, the atoms on my hands... The experience is not one of solidity, but one of exchange. <laughs> and so some of, the, some of the, the molecules and atoms on my hands are, you know, kind of interweaving with the, the, the atoms and molecules of the table here as I contact it. So, you know, the differences of scale and perspective. Um, last week I talked about reflecting about impermanence as being a really helpful tool to begin to, uh, to break or, or to undermine our habitual imputation of permanence to experience. But at every level of experience, impermanence is a truth. And because of that, when we try to find happiness by 
hanging on to something by uh, controlling or finding a way to have something, you know, if, if, if what we think of as happiness is getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, and that's largely how we think of happiness before we really begin to explore and investigate what that kind of happiness is, um, that the, uh, you know, if, if that's how we think of happiness, then we, then we are doomed to... Um, the truth of impermanence and unreliability, the truths of impermanence and unreliability, because if we, if we try to hang on to something and, and say, okay, that, that relationship, that uh, house, that car is where I will find my happiness. The security of having this thing is where I will find my happiness. If we, if we tie our happiness to having things, then the truth of impermanence will eventually um, come around and that, that experience, that thing will disintegrate. Often what happens more, of, more often is that um, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a way that our, uh, our system, our, our, our habit of finding happiness works. And a lot of that is around this, you know, it's like we, we want something, something pleasant maybe, you know, we want to find it, we want to get it. And uh, when we get something pleasant, uh, there's, a, there's a moment of, well, right before, there's a kind of a moment of, oh, I'm about to get this thing, I'm about to have it, you know, so that the moment of anticipation is often a very pleasant moment. It's, it's connected with the, the sense of, um, something pleasant is going to come to me. And it's also uh, connected to the sense of, I'm in control. I've figured it out. I'm going to have this thing. I know how to get these things. And so there's, a, there's an aspect of it that's related to, um, to control. That, that moment of anticipation is the happiness of that. And then there's the happiness that comes when we get that thing. Or get rid of it. The same process functions around getting rid of something unpleasant. And so this, uh, this cycle that we have, um, that's, that's largely the way that we have found happiness. That's largely the way that, again, because of the way our organism works, in, in some ways I see our organism as being oriented towards trying to find happiness or well-being. And um, in our life, largely the way we have found some measure of happiness is through getting what we want, through getting rid of what we don't want. And so over and over again in our lives, we have learned getting what I want. That, that's what makes me feel good. Getting rid of what I don't want. Oh, then I can feel like I'm in control and, and I don't have to be with things I don't like. That makes me feel good. And so over and over again, we've had that reinforced through our human experience. This is a human issue. It's not a, it's not a cultural thing. It's really a human issue. And so our, our, our human system 
partly, partly because um, that's the way our, our organism works, that we, you know, we orient towards not having distress in the body. And so things like hunger, you know, we get food, it feels good. We, we, we have that moment of feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling comfortable now. Or pain in the body, we figure out how to not have pain in the body. So, so those, those kind of very natural human experiences kind of reinforce that belief that that's how happiness is found. And so we have this uh, kind of conditioned belief. We have experienced that over and over in our lives from the time we are very young. From the moment we come out of, of the womb, we are being conditioned in this way through our human body. And so we have that as, as one of the sources for this belief that this is how happiness comes to be. And so, you know, the Buddha, in, in talking about this and in, in pointing to this, acknowledges that, yes, there is a form of happiness that comes from getting what we want. There's a form of happiness that comes from that. And yet, because of the truth of impermanence, that happiness won't last very long. And so we're back on the wheel of, you know, as soon as we find that... Um, that either the thing is no longer around or the pleasure of the having has faded. That's a big part of why the happiness of having is not so uh, reliable. Because the, um, the nature of that kind of having... While the, the, I mean, you may, for instance, um, you know, you may, you may get a something, you know, something that you really enjoy, some new toy. And uh, great, it's, uh, it gives you some happiness. And then, and then after a while, the kind of, the, that happiness of having becomes less satisfying. So maybe you still have the toy. Maybe the toy hasn't gotten stolen or lost or broken but somehow the pleasure of the having isn't as good as that moment of the feeling of anticipation of about to get something, of the being in control. And so we're looking for that feeling again. And so the, even though, you know, not everything vanishes and disappears, the, the, the way our minds work around that kind of happiness is that it's not, it, the, the, that kind of happiness doesn't actually last that long. And that's one of the things the Buddha encouraged us to look at around that kind of happiness and this kind of belief that having what I want will bring me happiness. This is, you know, this is kind of the, the underlying delusion around um, the truth of unreliability, the characteristic of reliability, is that the having will bring me lasting happiness. And so if we can begin to check out, well, how long does that happiness actually last? You know, sometimes it can last a while. I think when I first got my iPad a couple years ago, the happiness of that lasted a, a few weeks. And then, you know, it started just being more like a tool and 
uh, you know, the, the fact of the organizational capability that it gave me, that I could carry my calendar around with me easily, you know, those kind of delights that I had around uh, the iPad began to, be, to wane. I mean, it just became more the way it was instead of being a source of happiness. So, you know, so, so this, uh, this belief that our, um, the having of things will make us happy begins to be undermined as we look at how long does the happiness of having actually last. Another thing that we can... Oh, it, first I'll, I'll also point to... Um, so this, this thing about this way of, of being in the world and that essentially this mechanism of getting what we want, bringing us happiness, um, you know, that's, that's largely the way that we, f- we have found even little moments of happiness in our lives. When we've managed to control something, when we've managed to be able to spend time with something that makes us feel good, so the, the having or the getting rid of, that has been largely the way that we have um, found happiness through our lives. And the, uh, that because of that, it's like our, our mind is believing that that is as good as it gets. That is the best way to happiness. It's like we can't fathom that there might be another way. And this is one of the things I think that the Buddha was so brilliant about because he asked the question. He said, wow, you know, I see that this pattern of trying to get what I want of, you know, and and people running around trying to control and manipulate and have things. I just see the suffering it creates in the world. Is there another way? Is there another way towards happiness? So that was his question. That was his, his search. And so he asked the question, what, it, it, might there be another way to happiness? Most of us don't even think to ask that question. Or if we do think to ask that question, we don't necessarily come into uh, contact with somebody who is um, teaching uh, a response to that question other than, yeah, more of getting what you want. I mean, what we're surrounded by in our culture, the advertisements, what other people tell us is, yeah, getting that job, having that relationship, having that, that thing, having that status, having people think about you the way you want them to think about you. That's where happiness comes. And so not only is this um, delusion that having what I want will make me happy, that having what I want will bring a long-term lasting happiness, not only is it reinforced by our human apparatus, our human functioning, but it's also reinforced by our friends, our families, our cultures, because that's what they know too. And so, you know, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of the direction. Yes, you know, get what you want. And, and some of the you know, some of the wiser people help us understand that the impermanence of it isn't necessarily, you know, uh, you know that, that we have to accept that with grace. 
you know, that, that that's, a, that's part of our lives as human beings of understanding the impermanent nature of that kind of happiness and to accept it with grace and that we have these rhythms of happiness and sadness. And the Buddha wanted to understand if there was a more reliable kind of happiness. And his, un, his, his exploration, his, his um, own work revealed to him that yes, there is a more reliable kind of happiness. And that comes through a whole different approach to meeting experience. Rather than through this notion of I have to get what I want to be happy, it's more about coming into alignment with the truth of impermanence coming into alignment with the truth of unreliability and letting go. Letting go of... A lot of it is around letting go of the belief that I should be able to make myself happy in this way. The underlying uh, delusion associated with unreliability is that I should be able to make myself happy in this way. It's like... uh, Either we feel that, you know, this delusion that happiness should be findable. I mean, maybe some of us believe, don't rec- recognize that these, these moments of happiness come and go. But still we think that the ultimate, the best it could get would be to find a way to, it's like stringing, stringing beads. It's like if we, could, if we could string enough happiness beads on this string so that they're connected, so that as soon as that one ends, I've got another one ready to go. And then the next one and the next one, that some of us think that, well, that might be as good as it gets. But again, that puts us on this kind of like endless, exhausting wheel to find the next happiness. And the Buddha points to this as being a wheel of suffering. And, and it, it's, it's this, um, the pattern that I described of wanting to have something, you know, something pleasant or wanting to get rid of something unpleasant. You know, so there's that movement. It's a very, very human movement to move towards the pleasant away from the unpleasant. Again, kind of our human apparatus is designed that way. Uh, so to move towards the pleasant and want it, to want to have it, to like it, to um, try to uh, get it, to control it. And that whole pattern there, there's, there's ways in which uh, the, the way our system works essentially around wanting to be in association with pleasant and not in association with unpleasant, that pattern of wanting and... Uh, Getting and having reinforces itself in this way. So when there's something that we want, so something pleasant out there, something that we want, as soon as we want it, as soon as we feel like we want to have that thing, as soon as there's a feeling of desire for it, Uh, a craving for it, that very desire, that very craving creates a sense of offness. It creates a sense of lack. It's, it's, It's not that we are, it's that the lack is, the feeling of offness is that 
wanting itself. The wanting creates a kind of a feeling of something's wrong here. Now that feeling of offness that comes with wanting is subtle. Sometimes. Often I would say it's subtle. Uh, sometimes it's, if, if, if there's frustration, if we're not able to get that thing, the wanting of that becomes clear. The, 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 the unpleasantness of that wanting becomes clear. Frustrated desire is clearly unpleasant. But if we're in the direction of feeling like we're going to get that thing, then the, uh, the unpleasantness of the wanting is masked. It's obscured. Uh, usually by some thought, some idea of how great it's going to be when I get that thing. Again, this is kind of subtle. It's below the level of our conscious awareness often that this is happening. And so as soon as there is wanting there is a little bit of unpleasantness there, a little bit of agitation in the mind. That agitation is obscured perhaps by the, uh, the pleasantness of the fantasy of the, of, the, of the having. And then we kind of orient our, our actions towards the getting. And if we succeed, there's the pleasure that happens that comes from the feeling like we're in control, we can do this. There's the pleasure of the moment before, the anticipation of the having, that, that kind of moment of delight. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even last week, the uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, story of somebody asking Winnie the Pooh uh, what his favorite thing in the world was. And he thought for a moment and he said, well, while honey, eating honey is a very good thing, there's a moment right before which is even better. But I don't know what it's called. And that, that moment of just before, that moment of anticipation, to me it's like the congealing, it's the Yes, I figured it out. I'm going to get this. Like that there's the feeling of control of I've got it figured out is huge in that moment. And that feels really good. We really like that feeling of being in control. It's even better according to our system than having that pleasant thing. And so there's that that moment of in the moment when we, um, the moment before, we have that moment of feeling like we're in control and the moment of the, um, the, the having of the thing. Actually, I think in the anticipation and in the having, the wanting is in the process of going away. So as in the moment of anticipation, probably what's starting to happen there too is that the wanting is because it, it, there's the understanding of I am going to have this thing. It's like the wanting is releasing at that point. And then the wanting has released when we have the having. And so the unpleasantness, the agitation of the wanting goes away when we get the thing. And so not only do we get the pleasantness of the having and the pleasantness of the anticipation, the feeling like we're in control, but we get the pleasantness of the unpleasant wanting going away. And that 
unpleasant, that agitation, the subtle feeling of, oh, is this going to work? Am I going to get this? Is this going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? That like underlying anxiety that is coming with that wanting is a huge driver for our, uh, our system. And I will propose to you, and you can begin to explore this yourselves, that actually in our uh, experience of the uh, anticipation and in the having, that the bigger part, the biggest part of why we like that moment is because the anxiety and the wanting go away for a moment. That's, a hu- that's, that's another huge uh, source of the gratification of getting what we want. That the wanting goes away. The wanting believes that it's necessary to have in order for that happiness of the wanting to go away to happen. So embedded in the, uh, the, the, the wanting is this belief that when I want something, that the way to be okay around that wanting is to get the thing. So wanting has this delusion. The wanting itself is kind of a pull towards something pleasant. It's that kind of wish that we have to move in the direction of pleasant and away from unpleasant. The want, it kind of got a, a feeling of almost like magnetism, that wanting. It's, it's a pull towards. Embedded in that wanting is a delusion that having that thing or that accomplishing the action of that pull to get that thing is what will make me happy. Wanting is not going to tell you that the wanting going away, whether or not you get the thing, the wanting going away will bring a very deep kind of happiness. The release of the wanting. And this is what the Buddha discovered. That the release of the wanting, that the or the non-arising of the wanting, <laughs> that we, we don't have that kind of sense or the de- underlying delusion that that is what will make me happy. You know, so the release of that wanting is, is where a different kind of happiness can be found. And so this, we can begin to explore this in our, um, in our meditation, in our practice begin to look at what happens for us as we maybe just play with small wantings. See what happens as we explore watching the mind be drawn to something and choose from time to time rather than acting on that wanting to see what happens if we don't act on that wanting. What happens? Because the wanting too is an impermanent phenomenon. It will not last forever. And so if we have enough patience, we can notice at some point that the wanting goes away. 
often when we begin this exploration, it's more like we, we lose interest in the, wa- the watching of this whole process. And sometime later we realize, oh, I don't want that thing anymore. We haven't actually seen the wanting go away. It's more like the mind has gotten tired of fighting the urge and it's just kind of gone on to something else or something like that. But we may begin to notice in that that, yeah, I, I never ended up getting that latte or whatever it was, but, and, and, and that wanting for it is gone now. So, yeah, it's not a problem now. So we might begin to understand or recognize that, um, that, the, that the wanting doesn't have to be satisfied. And this kind of, this is something that we do learn as children, delayed gratification. You know, we learn this kind of thing as children, that we don't have to satisfy every single urge. But what we can also start to see with mindfulness practice and real curiosity about the, fun- the, the, the factor of wanting in the mind is to begin to get really familiar with the feeling of the wanting itself, the pull, the feeling of being off balance, the feeling of agitation, of anxiety, of, of discomfort around the wanting itself. And so this takes a kind of a diving below the thoughts, right? I, I said that, you know, often that discomfort of wanting is obscured by our ideas. And so, and it takes some courage too, to be curious and willing to hang out with the discomfort of wanting and not following through on that wanting. And so we, we begin to actually see and recognize, oh, wanting is unpleasant. Wanting has an uncomfortable feeling. And at some point we might also start to see from time to time, I mean, I, I, I see, have seen this in daily life. I've also seen it on retreat. But um, in daily life, I've seen that one time, you know, sitting by an intersection and seeing a Starbucks across the street, the mind created the image of a latte and really, you know, created the wanting for the latte. And I decided in that moment, okay, and I was sitting at a red light, so I got to watch it for a little while. Starbucks was in my view. The idea of the latte was in my view. But I decided that I would just watch the wanting and that I would not, as I turned the corner when the light turned green, pull into the Starbucks and get the latte, that I would just keep going by. And after I had gotten past the point where it would have been more effort, essentially, to like make a U-turn, waited another couple lights to get back to the Starbucks, you know, at some point I realized there was a point at which the wanting just crumbled. As we see wanting let go, we begin to feel the this different kind of ease and happiness. When I've seen wanting vanish, it feels like the mind is released from a vice grip. It's like the the wanting is this slave driver. It says, you will get this thing. And being uh, released from that energy is like being freed from that slave driver. Released from a vice grip. And this is what the Buddha began to recognize. That the, the energy of the craving, the energy of the wanting, is the very thing that is creating all of this suffering. And so exploring that, beginning to be curious about that. What is the wanting? 
And another thing that he's, he encouraged us to do around exploring this delusion is also, again, as I said, to recognize how long does, does the happiness of the having actually last? What is, so there is some gratification to having something that we want, but, but how long does it actually last? And, and then recognizing that it's not a mistake. It's not either our fault or the, some fatal flaw in the universe when that kind of happiness fades. It's the nature of it. It's, the, it's an unreliable kind of happiness. Yes, it is a kind of happiness. And it's, it's very unreliable. And so the... Beginning to investigate that, the extent. How long does it actually last? We tend to, um, because of this delusion that we should be able to get what we want and that happiness uh, should be reliable in this way, somehow the belief of that creates either a feeling, often can create either the feeling that somehow I have failed when some kind of happiness doesn't last or I'm not able to string together like beads on a string happiness after happiness somehow I'm at fault or we feel somehow that the universe is at fault you know that it's a, a it, it's it's just it, a fundamental flaw of the universe well it is a fundamental reality of the universe and fighting that fundamental reality of the universe is where so much of the rub of suffering happens. There's a great cartoon, I'll share it with you. This is a Pearls Before Swine comic. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's got the animals who have these little communities and the mouse. Mouse is sitting at a desk writing a letter And the letter goes, Dear life, I'm writing you to express my dissatisfaction. First, I didn't ask to be put here. You put me here. That started us off on a bad foot. Given that rocky start, I'd think you'd strive to be a good host. But no, you fill this place with unpleasant surprises. And if that's not enough, at some point, I apparently cease to exist in a manner that is most likely shocking, painful, and tragic. Can I say rip-off? Please provide a refund. And then Pig comes up, and Mouse turns to Pig and says, where do I send one of these? So this idea that somehow it's a flaw, that this is the way life is. It is the way life is. And when we fight it, like Mouse is fighting it, when we fight it, that's where the suffering of, the optional kind of suffering comes in, essentially. We fight unreliability, we fight impermanence, and we suffer. So one thing I want to say, um, you know, essentially what the Buddha suggested, he suggested these, these pieces around watching the wanting and um, noticing uh, 
how far does gratification extend? He also said, he used this language around um, these truths. The, the, the use of the word characteristic, I used that word before, um, often in, in this tradition we talk about the characteristics of impermanence, unreliability, not self. And that language of characteristic, of these being characteristics of experience or characteristic of what's happening, that's language that came later. It wasn't language the Buddha used. The Buddha encouraged us to cultivate the perception of impermanence, to cultivate the perception of unreliability. Really, in a very, um, I think really what the Buddha was pointing to is that all we can know are perceptions anyway. We can't really know what's actually a characteristic of reality. And so he encouraged us to look at what are our perceptions and what perceptions align us with the direction of a deeper kind of happiness and what perceptions catch us up in suffering. And the, in particular, the pers- cultivate, he said, cultivate the perception of impermanence and cultivate the perception of unreliability. And so rec- to do this, we essentially, all we need to do is watch our experience and, and begin to recognize that things are impermanent that things are unreliable as a source of lasting happiness. Part of the difficulty with the way our minds work um, is that we have a kind of a proclivity to either see things that correspond with our biases or not see things. Well, and we, we see things that correspond with our biases and we don't see things that don't correspond with our biases. And these go. this is true for these kind of of um, perceptions as well for, for these kind of um, aspects of experience. That impermanence is staring us in the face. It doesn't actually take much to recognize it. The, the corollary of unreliability is staring us in the face. When we... Uh, begin to be curious or essentially as the Buddha says cultivate the perception it's more like attuning to that things are unreliable in your life that things are impermanent in your life it begins to kind of poke holes in those delusions those kind of biases that we have that things are permanent that things are reliable So cultivating these perceptions. And it's not about creating impermanence where it doesn't exist. It's more about recognizing what's already there to be seen in our experience. Not not brushing by it. And as we kind of come into alignment with those perceptions, as we come into alignment with those and recognize that that is the way experience is, We, uh, we begin, it's, it's actually, it does, it's not depressing. We might think it would be depressing to really take in impermanence. We might think it would be depressing to really acknowledge that we cannot find happiness in the way that we've thought in the past. And yet what happens 
what, what I see happening more and more is that as we um, orient or align to this kind of uh, understanding, that because we've stopped fighting the truth, we, instead of acting out of delusion and confusion, we begin to act out of wisdom that understands that this is the nature of experience. This is the nature of human, human life. That things change, that there's nothing reliable in experience that I can hold on to forever as happiness. And so our actions, you know, sometimes when we, we explore this, this notion of um, craving and wanting being a source of suffering, there's the question that comes up, well, why would I do anything if I didn't want to do it? And again, that's a kind of a, a delusion that is embedded in the wanting Wanting cannot fathom any way, any other kind of way to action than through craving or that kind of craving. There's, I mean, we can call, there's a, there's a kind of an agency in our system and a, a sense of motivation, of activity. Our systems are active systems. And yet that activity doesn't have to be motivated by greed or by aversion or by delusion. It can be motivated by wisdom, by compassion, by kindness, by generosity, by different qualities than greed, aversion, and delusion. And so you know, the, the, the belief that, well, if I, if, I, if I just... If I let go of all craving, then I would never do anything. That's, that's a delusion also. Because as wisdom begins to grow stronger, as we begin to understand and align ourselves with truth, that wisdom wants to act. It wants to act to alleviate suffering in the world. It wants to act to support moving towards a deeper kind of well-being. And so... I just want to, I always like to point to the kind of misunderstanding that can happen around these teachings that we think that, well, what being awake means is not doing anything. And it does not mean that. It, me, it means instead that we are um, acting in alignment with truth rather than acting in denial of truth. And I talked the whole time, so... I'll try to leave more time for comments the next time. I'll be away for a couple of weeks, and so I'll continue talking about human delusion when I return. (laughs) And as always, there'll be somebody here um, the next couple of weeks. Thank you.